engaged with future hope. So when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, it's talking about the future and hope. God is going to send his spirit. Don't know anything about the Trinity. That's a much later, much, much later development. But uh, let's pause for just a second and think about the Holy Spirit in this way. All of us have a spirit. And uh, Paul's going to argue this later on. We'll see it in a couple of weeks. But uh, I would never give my spirit to you. That's the last thing I would ever want to happen unless I'm on the other side of glory. There's too many things that are shameful. Too many areas of brokenness that the Lord has redeemed a lot of those. And he's in the process of redeeming. You know what I mean? Would you be willing to give your spirit to someone else? How would you like it if we were to display your entire life, all of your thoughts on a, on a big screen up here? Everything. How many of you would want that to happen? Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> and so it's a, it's a statement of real personal, of a real personal nature when God says, I'm going to send my spirit to live within you. Paul goes on to say, so that you might know the deep things of God. So that we would know God more fully than ever before. So the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit is presented, if he's not dabbling with creation and working all this stuff, he's presented as a future hope. He's coming. So last week we were in Joel 2 and we jumped, we took the leap to Acts 2 because that's where Peter quotes Joel when the Holy Spirit floods, kind of floods Jerusalem. Remember that story for those of you that were here? Well, today we're going to step back a little bit and pause, and we're going to look at Jesus. In fact, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to look at Jesus, because Jesus said and did an awful lot regarding the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to be in Luke, if you want to follow along. We're going to be in Luke. It's, uh, these are all well-known stories. In fact, many of them are uh, Christmas stories, but yet they tell us something very fascinating. So in the Old Testament, we have the Holy Spirit inadvertently appearing. And remember, they didn't have the understanding that we have today. So we think of the Holy Spirit as a person of the Trinity. We're Trinitarian as a church. But that's a much, much later development down the road. And so look what happens. When Jesus appears on the scene, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit seems to be just everywhere, floating around, doing something. We named it Wind of Change. Wind because the word for spirit can be translated breath, wind, Spirit, it's true in Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. It's the same with both languages, that you can use the different words. So we thought we'd name it wind because as we're sitting here, you're going to keep feeling a gentle breeze. And every time you feel that breeze, think about the Spirit. And then we added the word change because whenever the Spirit shows up, guess what happens? Things change. Things change. In his own quiet way. And things begin to change. So, about the time that Jesus is due to come, or as God erupts into our world, all of a sudden out of nowhere, God appears in the form of his son Jesus. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. So, we go all the way back to Luke. Luke chapter 1. And uh, right off the bat, um, 
Verse 5, in the time of Herod. By the way, these are all Christmas stories. You've probably heard these many times. You have Zechariah, who's going to be the father of John the Baptist, right? He's on duty, and an angel of the Lord appears to him, verse 11, and something miraculous happens. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard, verse 13. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. Then we see in verse 15, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. That's an unusual occurrence up until this time. We have very little examples of the Holy Spirit filling people up until now. And here we have a priest in the temple being told, your son is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And verse 16, many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. So the Holy Spirit is going to be filled with the Spirit. And what's going to happen? He's going to start bringing people back to God, the one true living God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I mean, you know the story. Zechariah said, how can this be? I want proof. <laughs> I love it when it happens. God said, okay, you can't speak. How's that for a sign? <laughs> I think that's pretty awesome, isn't it? God, I don't know. I really want proof. Okay. What do you do with that? So then when his son is born, he can speak again, right? Then you move on in verse six, uh, 26, and uh, you have the birth of Jesus foretold. Again, a very famous Christmas story. Verse 28, thing you don't ever want to have happen to you women is an angel to show up and say, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. <laughs> Something's about to happen. Mary was greatly troubled at these words. I love it. I love it. When God shows up, it's, it's, it's worth being a little anxious. It really is. In fact, my, my simple view of when God speaks, the whole question of, of how much do we really want to hear from God, well, at one end of the continuum, God speaks in a still, small voice. At the other end of the continuum, God says, Jonah, go. Right? Down here, it's crystal clear. Up here, it's not. You kind of have to scratch your head and wonder what the, how the Lord is leading you. If you decide that not to do what you think the Lord is saying, it's not as big a deal. You have a lot of freedom. Up here, if you decide not to do it, you get swallowed by fish. You die. Joel 2. As his spirit was departing from him, a big fish came along, Joel 2. Paul says, I am compelled to the point of death. So I personally prefer being at this end because I have a lot of freedom. So no wonder she was anxious, greatly troubled at these words. He says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. So Mary says in verse 34, how can this be since I am a virgin? Ooh, look at verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. See how the Holy Spirit's activity has We've already seen more of the Holy Spirit just in these few verses than we saw scattered throughout the Old Testament. 
But that's not even very much. There's more. Verse 39, Mary visits Elizabeth. She goes into Elizabeth. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Here we have it again. Man, the Holy Spirit is just dancing all over these pages, isn't he? When God decides to show up, the Holy Spirit, the silent, I like to refer to him as a silent member of the Trinity, he just appears everywhere doing all this stuff. Way back in Genesis, we have a picture of him hovering over creation, keeping everything under control, making everything happen. It's a picture of power, right? Now we're down here in Luke, and God is about to introduce himself to the world by sending his son, and the Holy Spirit's everywhere. Involved in all these people's lives. So Mary sings her wonderful song. We go on from there to the birth of John the Baptist in verse 57. Now, when, when John the Baptist is born, his father, Zechariah, in verse 67, sings this song. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. There he is again. He just shows up over and over and over again, and he begins to prophesy or sing this song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. That's Jesus. He has come to his people and redeemed them. Look how he concludes. Go down to verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. This is talking about John the Baptist. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, he's going to come prepare the way. He's going to prepare a world for God to introduce himself. So, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, verse 79, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Who's that? It's us, Gentiles. This is an illusion, a reference to Gentiles. This language goes way back into the Old Testament. The Israelites had the law of God. They had the light. The Gentiles were those who were living in darkness, living in the shadow of death. All of a sudden we have this glimmer, this promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. All of a sudden we begin to see it. The light's starting to shine and it's starting to dawn. And the Holy Spirit is just permeating this whole experience. Everywhere we look, we see him present now. Not true in the Old Testament. So about the time that Jesus comes, the Holy Spirit is moving everywhere. And we see this glimmer of hope starting to be realized. Those living in darkness will see this redemption. That's us. Most of us here today are Gentiles. That's us. That's what he's talking about. Well, then the birth of Jesus, you know that famous story. So we're not going to read it. You have the angels and all that sort of thing. There's some words in there, but we're going to skip over that. We're going to go all the way over to chapter 2, verse 25, because here you have Simeon. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. You see all this repeated phrase after phrase after phrase of the Holy Spirit with the coming of Jesus. All of a sudden, he shows up, and he's making himself known. It had been revealed to him by this Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. 
Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God. And here's what he said. Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations. God did not forget us. He remembered his covenant, his promise. And here he is right here. He's come back. In the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. There it is. He came back for us. That's what the Christmas story is all about. Jesus remembered his promise. We call that a covenant. And he came back for us. Well, no wonder they're marveling. They just saw God incarnate. They saw Jesus. Well, then we move to... uh, 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 chapter, let's go on over to chapter 4. There's other references to the Spirit, but you get the picture. You get the picture? When Jesus appears on the scene, when the time is right, or Paul says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, when the perfect time had come for God to act on all of his promises, the Holy Spirit shows up everywhere. We've seen more references already this morning than in everything we've seen in the Old Testament put together. He showed up, and there he is. Then in chapter 4, the very first thing it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And right off the bat, we have the first, one of the first clues of the role of the Holy Spirit. He sustains him through these 40 days, and he guides them through this temptation, this time of testing. The testing of Jesus is a remarkable testing period. It's not like anything you guys are going to go through, us, any of us. Because you see, Luke is going to argue that everything Jesus did, he did under the power of the Holy Spirit. Somehow, this is a theological conundrum. Those are words you learn when you get a PhD, by the way. It's a problem. How could God set aside or decide not to use his divine attributes? How is that possible? And still be God? I know I'm at a loss. But that's what scripture says happened. Hebrews goes one step further and says he lived life just like you and me in every single way. So if at any point during his 30 years on the earth or whatever the number it was, give or take a few, He decided to exercise that divine prerogative, omniscience, omnipresence. Then he's no longer acting as like you and I, is he? Because we can't do that. So when you read the temptations of Jesus in this short passage, those are all temptations for him to act as God. Turn the stones into bread. I can't do that. That'd never be a temptation for me. But it was for Jesus because he had committed his life to live life just like you under the power of the Spirit. That accounts for some of these passages, like uh, only the Father knows the day of the hour. Hey, who touched me? God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I alone? You ever been alone? Feel like the Lord's not present? Let me see. You ever feel that? 
He is present. He's just often in the shadows seeing what you're going to do. He's always there. God, why have you forsaken me? That accounts for all those passages because that happens to us all the time. I often don't know who touches me. (laughs) I don't know the day or the hour. That's being human. And so for the life of Christ, he decided to live life fully as a human. And Hebrews argues that's what qualified him to be our high priest. That very fact. He has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he didn't sin. We go back to the very beginning of the temptation and the spirit guided him through this process. He entrusted himself to the spirit and the spirit led him well. That's something to pay attention to. Something to pay attention to. Then we get to the passage in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread. Do you see that? In the power of the Spirit. Don't overlook that little, little phrase there. The Spirit of God is very active in Jesus' life. Now what we're going to find is that Jesus becomes, in a sense, a paradigm. He becomes an example of what our life is like. What did Jesus say to the disciples? Greater things you will do than I did. What's the one thing that Jesus did that the disciples did not do? Atone for sin. Every miracle he did was repeated. Because it was the Spirit of God working through him that did these miracles. And so the disciples repeated them. And he's told them, the things that I do, you will do more. The only thing they couldn't do was atone for sin, but everything else they did under the power of the Spirit. So Jesus is led by the Spirit. This is going to become an example all the way through Luke and Acts of what life is like for us. We're beginning to get a glimpse of what it looks like to have this Holy Spirit in our lives. Silent member of the Trinity, quietly leading. Making it happen. So he's teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So he went to Nazareth. That's his hometown, by the way. Where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. So apparently, this is not unusual. They probably were expecting him. He's a hometown boy, right? They all know him. Hey, this is Joseph's son. Good to see you, Jesus. Glad you could show up at the synagogue today. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Been traveling around doing miracles, we hear. Look what happens. So he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found... Okay, I pause. It's not like he had a modern Bible with verses and all that. That all came much later. Chapters and verses. And he was given the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins to unroll it. And he's looking. Now imagine if you didn't have any verse references. I mean, Isaiah is a long, long book. Probably wasn't Hebrew. And so you're unrolling the verse and unrolling the verse and unrolling the verse. And ah, here it is right here. Isaiah 61. He passed Isaiah 58 a couple of columns back. Got to remember that because I'm going to read this. So I'm going to bring Isaiah 58 into it. He found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Now we know now that that doesn't happen much in the Old Testament. This is in a prophetic passage in Isaiah. This is talking about the future, the coming of the Messiah. 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and he brings in Isaiah 58, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those are good words, aren't they? Aren't those good words? Don't they characterize what we hold dear as Christians? We're caring for the poor. By the way, uh, proclaim freedom for the prisoners is the same word as forgiveness. Just a different context. Uh, Set the oppressed free. That's the same word as forgiveness. We're talking about bringing in forgiveness, helping people. We're talking about helping the marginalized, helping those who are less fortunate than us. Isn't that part of our creed as Christians? Is it? What do you think? Yes or no? Yeah. These are gracious words, right? Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. I love this. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They're wondering, okay, where are you going to go with this? Now, remember, they had heard about his miracles. They heard about this uh, hometown boy they all knew doing this fantastic stuff. So they're wondering, all right, where are we going? Where are we going? So he began by saying, today, 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 as you hear this, the scripture is fulfilled. Right now. This second. Now, they're smart enough to have known this is a passage referring to the future son of man. And he says, today, right now, as you hear it, the scripture is being fulfilled. Those are powerful words. You got to picture this is a small village. Most of the villages in the ancient world were only about six acres. That's less than the amphitheater and the park here. This is a really, really small town, and Jesus is one of them. He belongs to them. He's a hometown boy. And they're saying, we're proud. Those of us that live here, Nick Cugino went to the Air Force Academy, didn't he? Yesterday, we got to talk to him because he had his phone with him. He had a day where he could have his phone. And uh, he's one of us. Just graduated from high school. He belongs to us. We're proud of him. He's Jesus. He's one of us. Today. You mean, Jesus, you're, uh, you're this son of man that Isaiah talked about? You're the Messiah? Jesus said, yeah, I am. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they said? Isn't he one of us? The story is wonderful. It's perfect. It's textbook. Just what we want from our hometown boy, isn't it? And Jesus goes and wrecks it. <laughs> Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Now, I suspect a lot of you are scratching your head. Okay, let's bring it modern-day terminology, and then we'll take it back to the ancient world. How many of you would like it if you went to a, uh, a nutritionist who helped you uh, explain your nutrition, but they never paid attention to it? Maybe they're 150 pounds overweight. Would you feel comfortable with that? Or you went to a doctor who uh, helped you figure out how to help live a healthy lifestyle, but they didn't do it themselves. They're smoking and all that kind of stuff. And Would that make you feel comfortable? Wouldn't, would it? All right. Take that same imagery, let's move it back into the ancient world. This is actually a very common proverb. We have lots of varieties around this one proverb being spoken in the ancient world. But to make sense of it, you have to understand that 
In America, I am me. The center of the world is me. That's not true in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they belonged part of a community. So the little village, your identity was found in the, your tribe. So you start out, you're an Israelite. Well, you know, they all knew they were Israelites, but then you're part of a tribe. We're all the tribe of Benjamin or Judah. That's what distinguishes us. And solidarity. If you're part of the tribe of Judah, we stick together. I am defined as we, but then you get down to the village. I'm actually from Nazareth or from some other. So Paul says, I'm from, and he tells you where he's from. That's part of his identity. That's part of his heritage. That's part of his lineage. So they didn't think individually. That's not part of their worldview. That's not how they conceived of it. I exist as part of a community, and my identity can only exist because I belong as part of that community. So this proverb came to refer to those who were helping other villages or other tribes, but not their own. Does that make sense? So you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. You're out there taking care of all these places in Capernaum. They've already said they've seen these miracles going on. But what about Nazareth? What about us? In other words, this is a way of saying, prove yourself. You claim to be the son of man, prove it. You're right here in your hometown. Do the miracles here that you do there. So Jesus, he takes it up before they have a chance. Surely you will quote this proverb to me, prove it. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. You really the son of man? Let's see you do it. It's time. Step up to the plate. Here's what Jesus said. Truly I tell you, he continued, prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. I assure you, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Many widows in Israel. Many Israelite widows. When the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, none of the Israelite widows. Instead, he was sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. He was sent to a Gentile widow. No, that doesn't work. We receive the blessings of God, not the Gentiles. So he pulls out of Elijah's history, the one, one of the cases where he wasn't sent to help the Israelites, he was sent to help the Gentiles. And he gives a second example. There were many in Israel with leprosy. Israelites, during this time, they were rebelling against the Lord. And God had cursed them. They have leprosy all around the nation. There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. He's a Gentile. All right, you get the story? This is our hometown boy. We've heard about all your miracles. Time to step up, Jesus. Do it here. And Jesus said, no. No. The Bible testifies that God loves this whole world. He just broke the ties permanently with his hometown. Never was welcomed back. 
He chose. And he didn't choose the familiar. He chose the other. He didn't choose his family. He chose the Gentiles. He didn't choose his tribe and his village, which had given him his identity. He chose the mission of God. You see it? Look what they did. All the people in the synagogue, they were furious. This is a very strong word. They were outraged. They were so angry, they couldn't contain themselves when they heard this. So they got up, they drove him out of the town, they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is a powerful story. This is the first thing that Jesus does in Luke in the way of public ministry. He cuts the ties with his family. And that introduces a whole series of very complicated sayings that we struggle with in our world today. Unless you hate your mother, your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, you cannot be my disciple. His mother and his brother show up for one of his sermons and they teachings and they say, your mother and your brother outside. And he goes, who are my brother, mother and brothers but those who do the will of God? This sets the paradigm, the example for all of Luke and Acts. All of Luke and Acts. Paul, once he became a believer, probably spent 90% if you calendar out all of his prison time and his and his, uh, his missionary journeys. And yet he says at one point, don't we have a right to take our wives as Peter did? Who apparently had some kind of family, I don't know. In America, here's the way we prioritize things. I am the center, <laughs> and then my family, and then my friends, and then ministry to the broader world. Jesus flipped that on its head. Now, I don't think he's saying we do ministry at the expense of our family, unless your family's an obstacle. By the way, one of the greatest hindrances to keeping young people from becoming missionaries and raising Christian families are their parents. They don't want them to go overseas. Nancy and I, when we became missionaries, we experienced that from both of our parents. And we had to say, God's calling us. And we went. And we paid a price for both moms. Our dads were both gone by then. Jesus flipped it on his head. I don't think he's saying ministry at the expense of family unless family is an obstacle, but I think he is saying that concern for the world, for this county, is equal with family. And in some cases, precedes it. That's why I said, unless you do these things, you can't be my disciple. Those are the tough words of Jesus. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to place a stranger on an equal footing with your family? Remember, in our culture, it's me, the center, friends, I mean family, friends, and then the world. Jesus reversed it. Let's pray. By the way, that's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. You care. You begin to care about this entire world because Jesus died for the whole world, not just for you. Father, we are grateful 
We are grateful that Jesus, I'm particularly grateful that you, um, you chose me. You chose me and you were willing to say no to your family. You were willing to say no to your own hometown and to go eventually to the cross for me. Thank you. Help us to live that out as well. Help us to be as concerned for the people in our homes, wherever we're from, our, our, our communities, uh, those that don't know you, the blind, the oppressed, the poor. Help us to be as concerned about them as we are with our families, Lord. And by the power of your spirit, being led by your spirit, to live out this wonderful, wonderful life in front of them so that they can see the truth about who you are. I pray these things in your name, Jesus, because I believe in you. Amen. Thank you. We're going to give you a chance to do a, a couple of things now. You're going to invite the, um, the band to come down, lead us in worship, some more worship. We're going to take an offering. And I would just like to say that uh, my, uh, the people who here, let me see who here are actually from DCC. Pay attention to this. Raise your hand. All right. See that? Now, if you're not from DCC, raise your hand. <laughs> I love it. Isn't that great? We, we're a small church, and on our own, we would never afford to come out to the amphitheater. We're just not that big. Uh, in fact, on any given Sunday, we have 600 people here, and about 100 of them are from my church. The rest are on vacation <laughs> somewhere. And um, we, we love doing ministry. And I would like to say, my church has heard me say this, I'm so grateful for your generosity because you are a generous church. And for those of you that are visitors, I just want to say an extra word of blessing. Thank you, because you were the ones, when we did the offering, that make it possible to rent out the amphitheater and do this for 12 weeks every summer. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you. And as far as the world is concerned, they're kind of crazy. We give. Most of the world doesn't give. Most of the United States no longer gives to uh, charities and things like that. Why do we do it? Paul says because in 2 Corinthians 9, it's an expression of the gospel. We believe in this good news about what God has done for us, and we want to help people. So the ushers, come on down. Come on down and take the offering. This offering, it makes it possible for us to do what we're doing. As you leave today, if God puts it on your heart, we have another offering. And you'll see as you're walking out at all the main points, these, these uh, kind of these cases, these glass lantern cases that say benevolence, community needs. Whatever money goes in there, we help people in the county that need help. We gave $50,000 yesterday to, to needy people in the county, our benevolence committee. Isn't that great? And that's because God puts it on your heart to drop something in there, a buck, you know, a thousand bucks, 10,000 bucks, whatever. <laughs> so thank you for leading us. It's so fun having you here. Thank you for having us. Thanks for the offering.